Thank you for listening to this message from Life in the Sun Christian Fellowship. We hope you'll be inspired to honor God and make disciples. We're in the second week of our series, Past Perfect, and those two words are combined uh, to summarize uh, this idea. And it's, it's the amazing reality that God's promises in the past are made perfect in Jesus. In the Old Testament, the promises of God are revealed through types and shadows and symbols. But in the New Testament, Christ is the fulfillment of these promises. Last week, for example, uh, Andy talked about sacrificing lambs. Now, the idea that's being revealed there is the idea of a payment for sin. Now, that might sound strange to some, but if you think about it, it's a, little, it's a lot closer to home than we think. How many of you have ever been hurt? Physically, emotionally, relationally? Anybody ever been offended? I mean, there's so much of that that happens in relationship. And whenever that happens, we intuitively, we instinctively know that there's some form of injustice and there needs to be some kind of restitution. It has to be made right. Somebody needs to pay for what happened. You know, one day my in-laws were over at our house and my little three-year-old nephew, he was having a fit about something. And his mom picked him up and she handed him to dad as he was screaming. And she said, honey, could you handle this? He's screaming injustice. And even as a little three-year-old, I mean, he knew when it was wrong and he was protesting. And we, in the same way, when something's done that's wrong to us, we know that it has to be made right. We know that there needs to be restitution. And what's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is forgiveness. Because when we forgive, what we're really doing is we're giving up the right to make them pay. Correct? In fact, when we forgive, we're actually assuming payment. We're, we're, we're receiving the hurt and we're saying we're going to take the payment for that. And that's really what God did for us through Jesus. Instead of us having to pay for our sins, he said, I'll come down to earth in the form of a man and I'll pay for you so that we don't have to. That's a picture of forgiveness. And that's why John the Baptist said, when he saw Jesus, he pointed and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so in the Old Testament, the idea of a payment for sin is revealed in types and shadows and symbols, but in Christ, the promise is fulfilled. Christ is the perfect sacrificial Lamb. And so that was week one in our series, Past Perfect. This week, we're going to look at Jesus as the high priest. So keep in mind the idea that this idea is being revealed in the Old Testament as a symbol, but Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. Now, as we talk about Jesus as the high priest, we're really entering into a controversial subject. And the idea that's a controversy is this. The exclusivity of Christ. What that means is, is the idea that Jesus is the only way. Nobody can get to heaven except through Jesus. Nobody can have eternal life. Nobody can experience God apart from Jesus. And quite frankly, any other method that is attempted just doesn't work. It's wrong. Now, I know that sounds very narrow, doesn't it? And yet Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to life. 
And so, no apologies, although this has become a controversial subject. Even among Christian circles, there are groups that would like to broaden the way or expand the way. But today, we're going to look at a verse that narrows it. Okay, so here we go. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. 15, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. 16, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we know who read it. They were Hebrews. (laughs) They were Jewish people. (laughs) And they understood the idea, the concept of a high priest. Now, many of us don't know what that is because we live in a different culture, in a different generation. Most of us are either Filipino or Chamorro or Caucasian or Asian. I think that almost includes everybody. (laughs) And we have some kind of maybe Catholic background or Christian background. But the word doesn't translate well for us in our modern day because the word has a different meaning today. And so what we need to do is we need to go back to the Old Testament and look at the Old Testament picture of what is a high priest. And so to understand this, keep in mind In the Old Testament, there were three categories of religious leaders. The first was, uh, were the prophets. Now, the prophets uh, usually were not full-time ministers. Uh, They typically had other jobs. But their role in the nation of Israel, and in fact, in in their role in uh, other nations surrounding Israel sometimes as well, was to speak the, the counsel of God to people. Their role was to speak the word of God and the heart of God to people. So that's the idea, God to people. The other category of religious leaders were wise men. Not wise guys, but wise men. And they were usually uh, employed by leaders and rulers of nations. How many of you know when you're a leader... Um, you face some tough decisions. And it's a good thing to have people who are wise to give counsel and advice in situations that you face. And so oftentimes people who were obviously gifted in this way were invited by leaders and rulers to be their counselors. And so again, uh, it was the idea of wise men communicating the heart and the mind and the counsel of God Two men, in this case, rulers. Now, sometimes they were also involved in spiritual education. There's a, that, there's a third category of religious leaders, and they were the priests. So you had the prophets and the wise men from God to man, but in the case of the priest, it was just the opposite. Their role was to represent men before God. And so uh, the priesthood started with Aaron, and the Bible does mention there were other priests, Uh, There was also uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, and there was also Melchizedek, but they were not Hebrew priests. Uh, The Hebrew priests, the line of Aaron, started with him, 
And then from there it grew. And over time it grew so big that they needed organization. And so out of that developed the high priest. And the high priest, he was kind of like the executive director of all the priests. And if I could just choose one word to describe the role of the high priest, that word would be this, mediator. A mediator. Now, some modern-day examples of mediators would be, let's say, in the NFL or the NBA or a hockey league. Every couple years, it seems that one of these groups kind of go on strike, and there's a conflict, and there's a dispute between owners and players and wages and labor and things like this. And so oftentimes what happens is they'll call in a mediator to resolve the conflict. Another place where you'll sometimes see mediators is in our public school system. You know, how many of you know in middle school there's a lot of drama? And instead of going to the principal's office every day or going to the counselor's office every day because so-and-so took my lunch money and I know it was Jeffrey, what the counselors are doing is they're training up other students to be mediators. So as peers, they can help their friends with the everyday conflicts that happen on campus. So what are the implications when we read that Jesus is our high priest or that Jesus is our mediator? Well, anytime you bring in a mediator, two things are happening. Uh, Number one, there's a problem. There's a conflict. There's a relational breakdown. There are two parties who are at war or in conflict, and there's an impasse. There's a stalemate. And there's a problem. The second thing that's happening is I can't fix it. I can't fix it. I've tried. They've tried. We've tried repeatedly. We tried it this way. We tried it that way. It's not working. And so what we need to do is to bring in a third party from the outside to be a mediator. Because of our sins... We have a problem in our relationship with God. Because of our sins, we're separated from God. There's a problem. And the problem isn't a physical separation. I mean, if it was a physical separation, then you could just go to a temple or to a church or to a building, and there you could feel closer to God. And I know sometimes we'd like to think that's true. But the truth of the matter is, God's not any more present in here than he is out there. It's not a physical problem, and it's not an intellectual problem. It's not that we don't know. I mean, everybody knows about God. I mean, granted, God's a lot smarter than we are, and so there's a distance that way, but everybody knows about God. I mean, I've never met a true atheist. I've met people who said they were, but as I get to know them, I find out the reason they say they are is because they're angry at God which indirectly reveals that they actually believe in God. The problem is not an intellectual separation. The problem is a moral separation. God is holy and we are not. That's the separation. It's a moral separation. And so there's this problem and we can't fix it. We need a mediator. Now, there are some modern-day mediators that are quite common. Um, depending on our background, some of us were accustomed maybe praying to saints as a mediator. Now, typically saints were very godly people. They were people who walked in faith and God even used them to uh, see miracles happen 
in their time, in their surroundings. But if the saints could come back and talk to you today, if they were standing on this stage, they would tell you that they are not your mediator. They would say there is a mediator and it's not me. Another example of a common mediator that we think of is some of us, maybe in the past, have gone to a priest. We would go to a physical human being, a priest here on earth, as our mediator. But you know, the problem with that is that even in the Old Testament, the priests were morally flawed. They also had to conduct sacrifices for their own sins. And so it's only a type and a shadow and a symbol, but it's not the perfect reality. Another modern-day common kind of mediator is the Virgin Mary. Now, Mary is an amazing person. She was used in a profound way that nobody else will ever be used in that way. There will never be another virgin birth. But Mary never saw herself, and Scripture never reveals Mary as your mediator. In fact, the one time that somebody tried to go through her to get to Jesus, she said, whatever he tells you, you listen to him. She actually stepped out of the way and said, you listen to him. She did not see herself as a mediator. She never said that. But, you know, when we get to modern-day evangelical circles, you know, we may say to ourselves, well, you know, I don't pray, you know, to the saints, and and I don't pray to Mary, and I don't go to the priest. What we do is we go to the pastor. And the moment you think that you need to go to the pastor to pray for you, you have created a substitute mediator. Some of us use our parents as mediators. You know, this is my mom and dad's religion, and it's their church, and I grew up in church, and it's just always been that way, and your parents are not your mediator. Some of us may use our spouse as a mediator. Now, granted, some of our spouses are maybe more spiritually mature than we are. Amen, and thank God for that. But sometimes we can kind of like, just kind of want to hide in their shadow and just kind of ride in the groove of their spiritual journey. And I don't really have to do anything because my husband or my wife's going to carry the ball. They got it covered. Your spouse is not your mediator. Some of us use our life group leader as our mediator. On that note, uh, by the way, great job, worship team. I always enjoy worship. But where's Carol? Carol, raise your hand. Church, she is not your mediator. (laughs) I have a surprise for you. God does not answer the prayer of the leader any faster than he answers yours. They have no access to God that you don't already have. Some of you don't believe that. You're going to try anyway. What does scripture say? 1 Timothy 2.5, let's put that up on the screen. For there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. Wow, that is very narrow. That is very narrow. Did you know that Jesus said the very same thing? John 14.6, next slide. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one. Let me repeat that. No one comes to the Father except through me. Wow. 
That is exclusive. You know, sometimes people complain that Christians say Jesus is the only way. Jesus said he was the only way. He said, no one can come to the Father except through me. Now, either he was wrong or he was right. If he was wrong, then he was either one of two things. Either he was a liar or he was a lunatic. He was crazy. But if he was right, then that means he is Lord. You know, my wife and I, we were on vacation with the kids one summer and we were driving in Canada and we pulled over to a rest stop. And as we pulled out, I got back on the freeway and I was heading to our destination and I had it very clear in my mind. I knew where we were going. And you know how they have those signs that tell you the next town and how many miles away it is? We drove by one of those. I said, Terry, can you believe that? These Canadians, they put up the wrong sign. We got about 10 minutes down the road. I saw another sign. I said, well, at least they're consistent. They're wrong again. They just put up the wrong sign. I kid you not, I drove 40 minutes before I figured out I was the one who was wrong. 40 minutes wasted down the freeway. I sincerely thought I knew where I was going and I was headed in the right direction. Here's the point. Sincerity has no effect whatsoever on truth. You can be as sincere as all get out, but you can be sincerely wrong. And you know, in our modern day sympathy, we say, well, you know, they believe this way, but they're so sincere. They're so sincere. And it just seems unfair that God would make only one way to himself. It just seems unfair. I'll tell you what's unfair. Unfair is that God had to sacrifice his only son so that you and I could have a relationship with him. That's what you call unfair. You know, and how dare we come to God and say, I mean, have you ever busted your butt to do a favor for somebody? And then they came and they kind of criticized it or dissed it and said, well, couldn't you have done it the other way or a different way or a better way? And you're like, you thankless little... (laughs) (laughs) Christianity is about understanding who God is and what he has done for us and then responding in a way that honors him. It's not about me doing good things. It's not about me being a good person and then God responds to me. It's about understanding who he is and what he has done for all of us and then responding in a way that honors him. Here's the whole point of the passage. Since Jesus is our high priest, since he is our great mediator, how should we respond? Verse 14. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. What should we do? How can we honor him because of all that he has done? We need to hold firmly to what we believe. So what does that mean, to hold firmly? What does that look like? September 3rd, 1987, headlines of the LA Times reads, Pilot sucked out of plane, hangs tight until landing. 
Pilate sucked out of plane, hangs tight until landing. What does it mean to hold firmly? Well, here's what it meant in that particular situation. The airline was Eastern Express, a small commuter airline. The pilot's name was Henry Dempsey. And they didn't have any passengers. They were transporting cargo. And they heard this noise rumbling in the back, in the cabin. And so the pilot turned over the controls to the co-pilot. He went back there to go check out the noise and discovered that one of the doors was ajar. And so as he tried to secure it, all of a sudden the door flew open and he got sucked out. And on his way out, he grabbed a hold of the ladder and held on for his life. Now the co-pilot didn't know that he had held on. The co-pilot thought he got sucked out and radioed in and said, man overboard. He turned around and he landed at the airport 10 minutes later. And when they got there, uh, what the people in the, in the control tower said was, you know, they would like to think it was impossible for somebody to be able to hold on at that speed. They would need nerves of steel and strong muscles. And when they got to the plane, the pilot had such an iron grip on the ladder, they literally had to pry his fingers off because he had this iron-clad grip holding on for dear life. You know, the world will try to pry your fingers off your faith. They will try to cause you to lose your morals and your integrity and your belief. But because Jesus is our mediator, you are encouraged to hold tight to what you believe. That's what it means to hold firmly. Now, many of us, sometimes we we don't feel confident to hold tight to God. Sometimes we're afraid that, you know, maybe he, maybe he won't accept me. Maybe there's something he's looking at and he's, he's judging me. But remember this, the high priest understands our weaknesses. This is Hebrews 4.15. He faced all the same testings we do This high priest, Jesus, understands our weaknesses. He faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. He understands what you're going through. He understands your struggle. He understands those moments when you just feel like giving up and you just want to throw in the towel and say, you know what, forget it. I don't want to try anymore. He understands. He went through the same testing and the same trials that you and I go through. Nevertheless, he's encouraging us to hold firmly to what you believe. Not only are we to hold firmly, the second thing that we should do in response to the fact that he's our mediator is to enter boldly. That's the next slide. Verse 16, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. What does it mean to come boldly to the throne of God? What does it mean to come boldly into God's presence? How many of you have ever been to a graduation at uh, UOG, at the field house? A few people? Remember years ago, it was first come, first serve, and you could just walk in, and oftentimes there was standing room. Lately, they've gotten more organized, and now they give the graduates a certain number of tickets, and the tickets are for family and friends. And so before the graduation, they're passed out, and the, the graduate decides who they want to invite, 
and now you have to have a ticket in order to get in. And if you go to the UOG graduation and you don't have a ticket, it doesn't really matter who you are or what your relationship is. You could say, you know, that's my sister who's graduating. And the attendant at the gate is going to go, excuse me, sir, ma'am, do you have a ticket? But if you have a ticket, then you can go in and you can be a part of the celebration. Now, what is the ticket? It's not a UOG graduation ticket. The ticket is the blood of Jesus that says you have him as your mediator, as your high priest. You know, if you show up at the pearly gates and you say, you know what, I was an active member at Life in the Sun Christian Fellowship, the angel's going to go, what? Where's your ticket? Even with a ticket, sometimes it's intimidating going into God's presence. And I want to show you an iconic photo that many of you have probably seen before. This is a picture of JFK Jr. And in the Oval Office, underneath his dad's desk. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was ever invited to the Oval Office, um, I would probably stand by the entrance or the door, quietly just waiting until I was acknowledged and, and invited to come in. I don't think... I would be comfortable rolling around underneath the desk playing like that. I hope none of us would do that. And yet, that's a picture. He feels totally comfortable being in his dad's, the president of the United States. And he is totally at home playing in his dad's presence. You know, another picture that I thought kind of expresses this is a picture of my family. Uh, I call this the luckiest guy in the world. And my daughter there with her hands on my shoulders feels totally at home and looks like she belongs. Ladies, if any of you did that, it would just be wrong. (laughs) But my daughter can do that because she's my daughter and I'm her dad. And this is what we're talking about, entering boldly into God's presence. You can walk into his presence and be there like you belong there because you're supposed to be there like your family, like you're a son or a daughter. This is what Jesus is saying about you entering boldly into God's presence. Amen? And it's not because of you went to church or you did good things. No. It's about whether or not you have the ticket, whether or not you have Jesus in your life. He is the mediator. So when we enter boldly into God's presence, what do we find? This is the second half of verse 16. There we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. There we find mercy and grace. You know, many of us are afraid to draw near to God because we're afraid that he won't accept us or maybe that he'll judge us or maybe that we'll get punished. Uh, You know what? God doesn't need to wait until you get near to do that. I mean, if he wanted to, he could do that from a billion light years away. It doesn't make any sense that we don't draw near to God because we think something might happen then. If it was going to happen, it would have already happened. You can draw near into his presence. With Jesus as our high priest and as our mediator, he bridges the gap, and we can enter boldly, and we can enter confidently. And when we get there, we find mercy and grace. What does that look like? What is mercy and grace? You know, imagine that um, you're speeding down the road. Anybody ever done that? Anybody want to confess their sins today? 
<laughs> okay, a few of us. Okay, I confess, I've done it. I may have done it once in my life th- this week. <laughs> so you're speeding down the road, and all of a sudden there's a blue flashing light in your rearview mirror. And an honorable police officer pulls you over. And he says, sir, I'd like to see your driver's license and your insurance. And so you pull out your documents and you show it to him. And he looks at it and he goes, eh, Benaventi? He goes, hey, I know your Uncle Joe. Okay, boy, so uh, next time just slow down, okay? I'm 50 years old. Okay, boy, next time. <laughs> That's a picture of mercy. <laughs> How many like mercy? (laughs) Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. But what does grace look like? So he says, okay, boy, next time, slow down. And next thing I know, he's washing my windshield. And then before I go, he gives me $40 cash for gas. He says, tell your Uncle Joe. I said, hi, okay. All right, take it easy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. When, When you get something beyond what you expected... Yeah. You know, it's amazing, God's grace. It's amazing God has given me a wonderful wife. He's given me two great kids. He's allowed me to be just, have this great job of being pastor at Life in the Sun. I mean, how could we not love him in return in light of everything that he's given us? How could we not serve him with all of our hearts? I want to invite the worship team to come on up. When we go into his presence, we find mercy and we find grace. Since we have a great high priest, let us hold firmly to what we believe and let us enter boldly and let us receive grace and mercy. And so here's the summary of the last slide. Because of Jesus, you're encouraged to hold firmly, enter boldly, and find grace and mercy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for loving us. Lord, thank you for fixing the problem, being our great mediator. Father, we are forever grateful. And Father, we thank you that your word encourages us to hold firmly to you and what we believe, to enter boldly into your presence. Thank you, Lord, that there we find grace and mercy. And I want to invite you to take a moment just to be quiet in your heart, just to take some time to tune in to God. It's been a wonderful morning here in worship and in the Word. Can't think of a better time to take some time out to be alone with God. And just receive his love to soak in his presence, to receive his mercy, and to receive his grace. It's for you. It's for you. No matter what you've done, your worst moments that you could possibly recall, these are the things that he died for on the cross because he loves you. 
And I want to encourage you to receive his grace and his mercy. Deep in your heart, in those places where you doubt it the most, I want to invite you to let him come in and receive his forgiveness for you. And you may even need to forgive yourself. That's okay if you do. Just come into agreement with God. Say, Lord, you are gracious and merciful to me. I choose to forgive myself. In those worst moments in my life when I condemn myself and I feel ashamed about what happened, Jesus wants to wash away the shame, the guilt, the condemnation, and to remove all of it, to take it all away by the blood of Jesus. I want to invite you to do some business with God and just receive his mercy and grace this morning. Hold firmly to what you believe. Enter boldly into his presence. He's here for you, and his love is for you. Just take a moment of silence to do that. Would you come, Holy Spirit, and meet your people? Thank you, Father, for your goodness. If you would just continue in an attitude of prayer, there may be some of you here this morning as we're talking about receiving his love and forgiveness. Perhaps you've never formally made a decision to do that. And if that describes you, I want to give you an opportunity to make that decision for the first time, to open up to God and to let him come in so that you can experience his love and his forgiveness. And it's real simple. It really boils down to a decision. You just have to decide what you want. If you want to let him come into your life. And if that sounds like something that resonates in your heart, something that you want to do, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. It's just a simple prayer. I'll pray out loud. You can hitchhike on my words. God will hear you. God, I believe in you. And I'm here today because of it. And I'm here because I recognize that I need you. God, I sense that you've been trying to get my attention. And today I'm responding by saying yes to you. And I open the door of my life. I'm opening my heart, my mind, my life up to you. And I'm inviting you to come into my life. And I ask you to forgive me for all the things that I have done that are wrong, all the things that have hurt myself or hurt other people. God, I... I ask you to forgive me through your son, Jesus. And I receive your forgiveness and I receive your spirit here now, today, in this place, at this time, in my heart. And I ask you to change me and make me the kind of person you want me to be. Lord, would you reveal yourself to me and show me your ways. Teach me the way to go. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.